Hi, I'm David Miller. Hi, I'm Mikkel Rasmussen. Together, we both ride bikes. In fact, that's how we met each other. And on the surface, we thought that was our only common denominator. But then we got to know each other better and found out that we have a lot more in common than cycling. We also discovered in that process that we're not the only people like that. And that's essentially what this Off Bike podcast is all about. Welcome to Off Bike. So today, Mikael, we are in Shoreditch. Uh, yeah. And that in a funky hotel, hence a little bit of background noise. And we have a special guest today. We do. Ned Bolting. Hello. <laughs> I've just been busted, haven't I? Because you two are residents in this hotel, and I'm not. And I've come to meet you here. And, and Mikael, you've kindly brought three coffees across from the breakfast area. That's true. Two of which are paid for, courtesy of your room. Yes. And you just frankly nicked the other one for I, me, didn't I, you? I stole did. it. And it, it didn't work. It didn't work. And we now just got, our, I just got busted. You know, the financials of our podcast is in deficit. <laughs> so the sneaky I mean, There is a financial sneaky. side to your podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We wish. Whoa. <laughs> Otherwise it costs us money is what the financial you side is. You promised we would make shitloads of money doing this podcast, David. And, did you know, I? So far. Christ. You know. <laughs> wow. Yeah. A financial Costing side. Costing us shitloads of money. <laughs> um, so, Ned, it's... Yeah. Uh, Obviously, we've we've worked together. This is for, weird. For, I know it is. This is it? really never weird. Inter- yeah, I always said I'd never interview anybody, but I quite this like it. This is so weird. And I was talking with Nicole, my wife, uh, a few days ago, and I said, "I'm gonna, Nicole and I are gonna speak to Ned." Huh. And she was like, "Oh, that'll be amazing." Actually, oh, she's one of know, life's know, great enthusiasts. Know very so little about your background. Everyone takes for granted now. How long have you been working on the Tour de France? Seventeen summers. Seventeen summers. Yeah, that's a lot. It's a lot, and it's and f- that means for the majority of the viewers, m- that's all they know. Ned Bolting is Tour de France. Well, fr- I mean, terrifyingly, w- with the advent of riders of the of the, the new generation, we're talking about the Remco Evenepoels and people like that. I was talking to Tom Pidcock about you know his earliest memories of the Tour de France, and he's kind of like fumbling around and thinking about two thousand and nine and stuff like that as being his you know, and of course I've been on his you know he's always watched the tour and I've been on the telly ever since he was born pretty much you know so it's kind of yeah that's a bit humbling so you are Tour de France for him in a way well I mean it, but, but you do if you hang around long enough you, you just end up in that position by by default and almost by mistake you know and and then yeah, and David and I the the, the guy well the, the pair of commentators who we had to replace on British and American TV, or British TV, we commentate for Phil Liggett and Paul Sherwin had been, I mean, wh- what did we establish with Phil for when we spoke to him? 40 plus, isn't it? 40, Jesus. no, way over that, almost 50, right? Yeah, you're right, it's, it's something 46, crazy. 47 years yeah. of the Tour de France, you know, so, um, and that matters, you know, that matters massively in people's lives because I think the Tour de France uh, repays particularly the Tour de France, repays a kind of emotional investment um, in people's lives that few other sports touch. You know, so in other words, once you get it, it, it worms its way into your DNA and you, ident- <laughs> you identify with these mugs like, like me and David, you know. Right. Yeah, Ned, this is the off-bike podcast. So, so yeah, we're, sorry, we're, we're, we're allowed, I strayed we're allowed, way off the subject. We're allowed then. to stray far on the off-bike podcast. Um, it's actually the opposite of the... St- never strays far. We're always yeah. away. I feel like I, I, you basically <laughs> reprimanded me for saying Tour de France there, didn't you? Always. Yes. Uh, when like when you you're very good at getting into that subject. You know? yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so for me, and this is actually almost for me, because one, one of the things I've, I've been amazed with in the last few years is uh, you're very much, and, and take this 
this is a compliment, a, a renaissance man. And it, just the, the degree of creativity you have is insane. <laughs> last year, for example, and even this year, when you were, you created the road book last year. Yep. So you're working on that behind the scenes. That yep. was just going on. You'd written, completed the darts book. Yep. You were doing your, your show. Yep. Creating that. Yep. Writing it, then performing it. Yeah. You're doing all the TV stuff. Yeah. I mean, that's four strands there, that which are four very different things. Yeah. Happening all at the same time. Yeah. Uh, and it was mind-blowing to me because it, very rarely did you seem stressed by it. It seemed that every single one of them seemed a really purpose, passion project. Well, they all... They were all quite different. Um, they interlock in kind of like there's quite a lot of s symbiosis and overlap that's that's productive. But but they were all quite they were all sufficiently different. I mean, literally, you know, different media. So so television and uh, um, is one thing. Two different, very different kinds of book. You know, one one being a, an almanac, the the road book, and another one being a, a personal memoir and a piece of social history about darts, which is like in terms of the sporting spectrum of endeavour at the opposite end from road racing. It couldn't be further apart, and yet there, is, there are weird similarities. And then performing on stage for two hours with material that I've entirely kind of cur curated myself. Um, it w they, were, they were all... It felt like different jobs. So it felt like I had four different jobs that, that all trundled along. Having said that, David, it almost broke me. Yeah, I remember <laughs> the welter in, in September. You were me. at breaking point. Yeah. And I think that was, that was most of the show, I think, which I can understand because if you, anybody who watched Tour, Tour de Ned last year, it was an incredibly complex show. Yeah. I mean, how many. Well, you saw the dress rehearsal, the public dress yeah, rehearsal. It was the, the most shaming experience of my life. It was so complicated. It was insane. It was like a, it a, got better. a TED talk sort of linking your, what you did on stage to audiovisual for yeah. two hours. Yeah. It was it was mind blowing. You must see it one time because you're, you're doing right. it again next year, aren't you? Yeah, I'm. So yeah, I've got thirty dates in the diary for next year touring again, and I haven't written a thing, not nothing. So I'm going to write an entirely new show, and I haven't even started. Yeah, and so, uh, but, but what interests me is I I don't know much about your background um, because you you have quite a, an, a weird history going back even to your grandfather. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Can you tell us, uh, tell us who your grandfather was? Because I find that yeah. I, I know he wasn't uh, uh, publicly, even it's recognised he wasn't a very pleasant man, yet yeah. he was hugely successful. Yeah, uh, it's strange. He was, um, for a generation older than you and me, um, in Britain, this is Mikkel, um, mm -hmm. uh, my grandfather and his twin brother were almost household names. Um, the Bolting brothers were, um, in the post-war years, 1950s in particular, um, almost for a while, the defining um, film producers and directors of a certain genre and a certain era. They launched, they made films, I think most notably, I'm All Right, Jack, with Peter Sellers, and, um, uh, and probably their, their biggest success, critically, and in every other way, was a film called Brighton Rock, featuring, starring a very young Richard Attenborough. Um, and uh, they launched Richard Attenborough's career as a, as a, as a star, um, and uh, amongst many others. So they, they worked with all the greats of that era. And they were quite interesting. They were twin brothers from a uh, Jewish background in North London, and they, they um, kind of flip-flopped the roles of one would direct and the other one would produce, and then they, they kind of spun it round, and the next film they made, th th they fulfilled different roles. Um, my dad uh, is, was, I say, because both, both the Bolton brothers are, are long since dead, uh, the oldest son of the first marriage. Both 
both the brothers uh, married multiple times. <laughs> in my grandfather's case, John Bolton, six times. Had children with every relationship. My dad literally doesn't know how many brothers and sisters he's got. Um, he had quite a ruptured relationship with his, with his old man, with John, my grandfather, which meant that I never met, I never met John Bolton, not once. Um, he didn't turn up to my dad's wedding. Instead, he gave some quotes to the Daily Mirror saying, uh, you know, no good will come of him, my son, and all this sort of thing. So it was quite a public, weirdly. So there's a bunch of unspoken stuff in my family and this strange history that is qu quite immediately part of me. This was my blood grandfather and yet very distant because I never met him. You know, so all that I've told you now is stuff that I've really sort of found out uh, since I've been an adult and, and kind of like, you know, discovered on my own. It's a, it's a very... As you said, it, it is so close to you. I mean, that's your, and for your father being the firstborn of the first marriage, it yeah. was, you know, that's it was pretty much tied to them and yet very distant to them. Yeah. And yet you found yourself in a world which is something of that must have passed through because they were obviously very creative yeah. people, very successfully creative. Not yeah. And and yet you found yourself. I think it's not something you necessarily pursued when you were younger. No, no. And I don't know. I don't know if it's anything much more than coincidence to be honest David but it is it is a, you know that I've ended up working in kind of you know vaguely in the medium of moving images you know but I do remember um, I, I, it must have been one of the first years in which I uh, presented the tour of Britain coverage on the television uh, there's a production company who you know um, Century TV who make yes, who I make know, the yeah. uh, who make the pictures for the tour of Britain and for Ride London and they used to I don't think they are they used to be based their offices were at Shepperton Studios in West London film studios and the first time I went there for a meeting they we met in a cafe there which is basically dedicated to the Bolting brothers really? <laughs> wow. and um, in fact, I think it was even called Bolting's or something strange yeah. you know it had lots of black and white pictures of because for a while John and Roy Bolting owned Shepperton Studios before they gambled it away in, in some dreadful deal Jesus um, so it was, that was a very strange thing and here I was in some very different you know the folds of quirks of fate had yeah. kind of collapsed and Bonked me, and this cafe in Shepperton that was named after my granddad. Full circle. It was bonkers. And anyway, so yeah. going through. So uh, there's a couple of things. I mean, you, you, you strike me, and I don't know. It's quite an academic person. Quite a. Uh, you, you love learning. You've got an insatiable curiosity. And uh, your father was a teacher, wasn't he? Yeah. And you. Uh, I'm not sure you, you... What did you do at university? I did modern languages. <laughs> You've heard me speak French. That's remarkable, isn't it? Yeah, I know you did. Yeah. How did you speak German yesterday? Yeah, I speak, I speak German. Yeah, I speak German. And uh, weirdly, I think down the years, my French has kind of come back a little bit from working on the Tour de France. We, we you know, we get to speak it, don't we? But, um, you yeah. Just, yeah, and I'm trying to learn Italian at the moment. I know you are. Wow, it's difficult. Yeah. It is. Yeah. And I think learning any language at this point yeah. in our lives <laughs> is quite yeah, difficult. Um and you, what did you so modern languages? But then you decided the best way to do it was to actually not go to university, but to go to the country. Yeah, I mean that's you know it was quite dispiriting. I I, I went to Cambridge University, which was um, to study modern languages. I, I was just I was just reasonably good at school in Bedford at French and German, and I got quite I got quite lucky with my A level results. And then I all of a sudden I went to Cambridge University and found myself trying to study alongside people who had grown up in Switzerland, you know, or Swiss, you know, trilingual, jet-set, global bourgeoisie <laughs> families, you know. I speak seven <laughs> languages and, you know, my name's Tatiana. Yeah. And, Are you um, coming to my chalet this winter? 
Yeah, yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. That kind of chalet, you know, Euro. So I found it really hard, actually. I and I, as a result, this often happens with me, if I'm faced with a challenge that I can't meet, I just duck away from it. So I was a terrible student. I neglected my studies because I was so, I found it so difficult to compete with people who were naturally trilingual. So, yeah. And what, what can you explain the journey from Cambridge that, yeah. to commentating sports and well all uh, that? I know it's a long journey, but no, no, take well us to cut slowly it, for it. To cut time. it short, I messed around until I, w I, I went to live in Hamburg and uh, I lived there for years and years and years, mucking around, doing all sorts of random jobs. And then way too old and too late, I thought I need to start being a grown-up now. And I came back and my sister at the time had got herself a job at, at a start-up satellite TV company that is quite famous now <laughs> called Sky TV. And uh, she got me a job for £50 a week making cups of tea. And I, I used to do just Saturdays and the rest of the time I worked in a betting shop. And I was 27, you know, I was too old to be messing around like this. Um, and literally it went from there. It went from there. I got on very well and I was passionate about football at the time and they showed a lot of football. And before a couple of years had passed, I was, I'd been trained up very fast to be a football reporter. And by the time I was 29, 30, I was a football reporter. And, and, th and that was it really, for, for a long, long time, that was my passion. I went to the Champions League finals, I went to World Cups and all this sort of thing. Reporting live or? Reporting live, you know, interviewing on managers yeah, on yeah. TV. Yeah. Sorry, yeah, on yeah. TV. Mikhail at one point, he was uh, so the for, for his sins chaperone to George Best. I was. Really? Yeah. Yeah, George was the program I worked on at the time, where I, right when I started, was the only thing, the only television program that George did And he didn't always do it because every most weeks he didn't turn up because he was too drunk. W But, what um, year are we in now? We're in the late 90s, so okay, 97, yeah. 98, mm -hmm. something like that. 20 years ago, 20 year, just over 20 years ago when I started out. And um, Can I ask yeah. you, how do you learn to become a commentator? Like, what is it just doing it or so is there a technique to it? or How do you do that's that? That's a really good question. And it really needs sort of like carefully answering because... Mm -hmm. I, for years and years, I was a reporter. So I, I would interview, just like you're doing, I would interview people. Mm. And I would also present, so talking to a camera, you know. And both of those roles, they are broadcasting roles, and I was talking about sport, but they are singularly not commentating. Commentating is a totally distinct skill set. Um, and I think that, like, like many people looking at the job that I do from the outside, you don't really understand like the, the subtle differences between you know, the different jobs within the area no. in which I work. But, but you know, co commentary, as I'm sure David will testify, is a completely different um, thing. Uh, and I, 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 alongside David, weirdly, we both had to learn it from scratch Four or five years ago, David? When did we start? Something yeah, like that. it was 2015. It was 2015. My, I landed commentating on my feet. Cycling. Commentating on cycling. Which is very different than football? Or yeah, I never commentated on football. Okay. Y you understand the difference. Yeah, yeah, Com yeah. Commentator You're being reporting on, on football. Exactly. And then which, is, which is a whole different thing. You know. right. In a way, you know, it, it doesn't really matter what, what the sport is that you're talking about. No. Interviewing somebody is, is simply human interaction. Yeah. Like, so when I still report on television... Um, on darts right. and there is literally 
almost nothing to say about the sport. No. You you played it last night. I we did. Were, so the the dart either not goes in. Well, yeah, no, none <laughs> of us played. Very well. The dart either goes in or it goes out. Right, right, and that's it. There's nothing to say. There's no there's no nuance. <laughs> there's like so there's nothing to say about you know no. like a unpicking a really complex stage of the Tour de France is really but fascinating. It's interesting, but you, you can't do that with darts. I've seen like you com- commentating, actually, yeah. in France last year. You came in. And yeah. I've never seen a commentator. I've listened to it. Yeah. And I, something, I learned something which was, or discovered something. Um, as, a, as a viewer, you don't even notice there's a commentator. It's just there. It's just a sound, right? Yeah. You know what I mean? It's just a sound. It's, uh, and it would be really weird to watch a football match or Tour de France with no, just with the road. That's what we do. Rain. Yeah, I know. It's maddening. We, we sometimes take a step back and, and yeah. think, my God, we actually just watch a bike race without commentary. <laughs> <laughs> it's quite... That's a really <laughs> dangerous thought. <laughs> of course. It's a really that dangerous what you do. Thought, That's what though. we do. We watch bike racing without commentary. <laughs> right. And just talk about it. Yes. It's the weirdest thing. But, but here's the thing. Then I noticed we, we were talking. <laughs> Ned, we were talking and you were... I think there was a break or something. And I was in the room, and then I think you were noticed. And now we have to go on, and they count down, or there's a lamp. Or I don't know how they show you. And now you're yeah, he's got, he's got he's got on the ears. So this is actually I, I, I can jump in here because Ned's always so very humble about everything. Uh, he's there's a, a lead commentator and there's a co-commentator. Yeah. So I'm co-commentator color. The lead commentator has to take the viewer on the journey. Now on the journey through, as you said, the the take them on an emotional journey and while they're doing that they also have to be uh, taking the direction of the director to commercial breaks to what they're going to be doing with the show perhaps in the highlights not just the live coverage so there's always information coming in the year which I, I don't have to deal with that's Ned has to deal with always this this, uh, this second voice the, the director yeah. who is then telling him almost curating the show uh, remotely uh, so you actually have three sounds you have silence you have David, and you have the guy in the in the headphone. <laughs> yeah, so so it's um sometimes it can be quite difficult. That, that it requires little gear changes that have to be imperceptible to right. the to the viewer's ear, and yet you have to sometimes get from A to B to C in one sentence quite smoothly, and they can be very different points. But I was just very so impressed because I saw you doing this, and we were talking about something completely like where's lunch or something like that. Yeah, and then. All of a sudden, you, you, your body changed and <laughs> it became more tense. You stood up and you became like somebody who talks from a dream or something like that. Like, what do you call him? <laughs> a German or something like that. Like, yeah. And here's Alan Philippe. <laughs> 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 <You know, where laughs> so, there is a degree of performance about it. Yeah, isn't there? <coughs> and I was I just wondering, how do you learn? I was so impressed by that skill. Yeah, I, it's, a, it's a strange one. You, you've, got to be, you've got to find your voice. And the voice that you find has to be um, close enough to your true self so that you are not um, uh, tricking people. You know, you're not creating a false persona. You've got to be yourself. Mm. But you can't be just yourself because if you if you end up commentating as just yourself, you're not taking, the, uh, David just used the word, an emotional journey. You're not actually... You, so there has to be a degree of artificial kind of emotion that you invest yeah. I mean, it comes very naturally to me now um so you have to remind yourself that you so you ha- in other words you have to create and curate is a good word a, a, a personality that is slightly false it's like a mm. it's like an amplified sort of 3d version of yourself yeah. that that but is that's slightly what I virtual. Saw. you jumped into a different person yeah. almost right i also like in, a in a split second 
there is a practical side to that. Like, um, it's tiring. The Tour de France is 23 days long, including the rest days. Yeah. And we commentate for hours. And sometimes sitting, you, rising to your feet is just a, a physical thing. It just gives you that kind of kick up the backside. Right. That you, it's like when you're driving in your car and you're falling asleep at the wheel. It's like opening the window and letting the air come in. Yeah. Just to freshen you up. Sometimes mm. you just have to stand up. Right. <laughs> and can yeah. you... So you were in Hamburg, as I understood it. Then yeah. you were hired by this TV... Sky. Sky. Yeah. And, um, that was back in London. I, I came back to London with my tail between my legs, to use an English expression. Right. Not, not knowing not knowing kind of what to do with the rest of my life. And I got lucky, you know. So yeah. Like many people, I think... I don't, but know but I don't know but if you did you jump into it or did you apply for a job or what? No, nah, it was... I, as I say, I got a, I got a, I got a job one day a week, and then I grew that opportunity as fast as I could. You know, when people talk about in life, when a, a, a door opens just fractionally, and you can see a little slither of light mm -hmm. there, what you've got to do if it's the right door is you've got to kick it off its hinges, right, and get in. You know, and, and that was that was kind of what I did after that. I couldn't. It was my chance. If I hadn't taken that chance, I would still be taking bets in a branch of Ladbrokes. But Somehow I heard it came from your interest in f in sport and football. Yeah, like absolutely. It was already I was passionate there. about football. Yeah, yeah. I, I discovered football quite late. Yeah. And s strangely, I'm, I'm, I'm wrestling with writing a book about football at the moment, which is proven quite difficult, but it's actually not about football. It's about my life. And I've, I told you about my dad, and I'm, I'm going back to my dad's relationship with football when he was a child. And he, he doesn't like to talk about his life particularly because he had a difficult childhood, I think, with his, with his father. But I've sat down with him just recently and I've asked him about, tell me about football instead of tell me about your childhood. I've said, tell me about football. And I think I've had more honest and enlightening conversations about who my dad was and who, when he was young. Can you tell us a little bit because about I've that? Fra because I framed it in that way and I've said, you know. What, what, did, what did you open well, up in He just came uh, to life. He, he, came, right. he, he came to life when he remembered the delight that he had when he was first taken I think Highbury Arsenal's old old ground was the first one he ever went to with his dad and then uh, you know he, and then I found out subsequently that when he was a young man he used to go they, his dad switched allegiance from from Arsenal to Chelsea and the reason for that is because there was a very famous actor in, in, in Britain called John Mills um, and uh, John Mills was heavily invested in Chelsea at the time and uh Richard Attenborough had been hired by my, my, my grandfather to, to, to play this part in Brighton Rock and he was too fat he, was <laughs> he needed to lose <laughs> some weight so John Mills who was on the board of directors at Chelsea who, sa who knew Richard Attenborough said the way you're going to lose weight is if you come and train with Chelsea Football Club <laughs> so just got him brilliant yeah so, so, so Richard Attenborough he went Richard Attenborough went on to become a, on the board of directors at Chelsea and the only reason he has any connection with Chelsea whatsoever is because he turned up too fat at the beginning of Brighton Rock and no had to train with the football club way and at that point like Richard Attenborough my dad was quite close to John Mills and Richard Attenborough when he was yeah. young and he used to go like he used to go to Stamford Bridge all through those amazing years where the team were hopeless but they were amazingly glamorous because it was the it swinging was 60s. Chelsea boys. It was, ch it, was it was King's Road. You know, it was just amazing. So um, uh -huh. he has this deep connection with football and, and he's still, still to this day, you know. What is it? I mean, because I, I, what I find fascinating about football, because I remember, I think well, we both read it and probably quite a few of the listeners has, uh, is Fever Pitch. 
Yeah. Which is a great book about. You've read Fever Pitch. I've read Fever Pitch. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And uh, what I loved that that was an eye-opening uh, experience for me, realizing what football was yeah. to so many families, to to so many fathers and sons. Yeah. It was actually and brothers. It's very male, uh, yeah. tribal. Uh, sort of, it's often the only time, uh, the only relationship they have. It's like you were just saying regards your father. Yeah. The only thing, perhaps, that's what's bringing you closer again is football. Yeah. Talking about it because it's it allows that. That neutral ground, oddly, yeah, for such a tribal space it's for you. Parallel play—that's what it's called. I think uh, when you—you've okay. got kids; they're mm-hmm. still quite young. Um, Michael, you're, yours are a little bit older, but you—you yeah. you, you will remember. But heavily into football, right? But, but <laughs> no. But, but the point I was trying to make was when 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 kids are when they go to nursery, sort of like almost pre-language when they're three or four, they—it's quite strange, isn't it? Watching three-year-old kids meet and interact because they don't form friendships as we understand no, it. No, not at all. They, but they do this thing where they, they, they do this thing called parallel play where they can be absorbed and they're relating to each other and they're getting to know each other but they're not communicating. They're doing the same thing with a bit of Play-Doh side by side and sending out these because they're, concent- they're concentrating on the Play-Doh ostensibly but actually what they're doing is, is getting to know each Signaling. other. Yeah. But they through play, through play, yeah. parallel play. Yeah. So it's not in, it's not like we're doing. They're not no. looking each other in the eye and relating right. like that. That's what adults do. But and I think football does that. So you can, in other words, if you have a sort of, <coughs> if you have a, a relationship that's a little bit distant with someone, you can sit alongside each other. You don't have to look at each other. You look at the sp- the space of green grass in front of you and the the, the, the twenty two players yeah. running around, and that's your play doh. <laughs> We're moving into anthropology here. We yeah. are. There's also a very famous anthropological theory about the audio in stadiums and how it's synchronized. And there's almost no other human behavior that's as synchronized as football fans are. It's like a starlings. You know the birds? You yes. know the big flocks yes. of starlings? Murmurations of starlings. And, and they, even science has, has tried to yeah. measure it, right? And it's unexplainable. It's... F- it's almost like physically impossible to be as synchronized as they are because no, there's no leader. There's no one saying, sing this song. Yeah. It just happens, right? Nobody goes, yeah! Like that, like the sa- with the same tonation, really, that you see in a, in a football. You have the same with American football, I guess, and other stadium sports, but it's just incredible. And then the theory is that it's very, very close to tribe behavior, mm. um, which then releases <coughs> a lot of happiness. Like be feeling that we are together, so yeah. Basically, anthropo- any anthropologist would say there are no individuals. We are not individuals. It's it's a social construction that we think we're individuals. We are all just a crowd, yeah. right? like social animals. And the football stadium is probably probably the best symbol of that. And and even at w- at even you don't actually have to. The strange thing that that that, that um, seeps through the distance between. Um, you can consume football from a distance through a television screen in yeah. an incredibly powerful way because right. you still feel part of a community. So I have I never supported a club. Right? I didn't grow up supporting a club, so I don't have any club allegiance. But strangely, I do feel very, very strongly, and I don't even know why, about England, the English national team. But I, I, I've, I've, I've very rarely actually been in the stadium and seen them play, only when I've been working, curiously enough. Um, most of the, the the nights I remember supporting England have been in, you know, watching it either at home or in a pub on television, and yet I felt part of this tribe, nonetheless. Sure, <laughs> I can vouch for that because I was quite surprised at your 
your love for the England for England for Team England yeah. was your flag everywhere on your bike and yes. <laughs> uh, the car uh, at, the, at the Tour de France last year, and I was like, well, I didn't didn't know Ned had it in him, and yeah. it was it was as if that was your team. The, the maybe it's just because you're so fed club. up with like cycling. Maybe. Yeah, yeah, true. I, I also, I mean, there was a, there was a, we're at a particular point in time with English history, in particular now, aren't we? With, with, um, with I mean, listen, we had the general election last week. You know, that that w- that went the way it did, yeah. right? Um, and I've never known this this country more bust up than it is. And um, curiously, one of the few things I think that could bring us back together, in, uh, even I- even if it's just an illusion, even if it's just for ninety minutes is this wonderful young England football team at the moment, which is being led brilliantly by um, one of the most erudite and thoughtful England, well, the most erudite and thoughtful England manager we've ever had Mm. in Gareth Southgate. Mm. Uh, And so I guess the the sort of segueing, what I, is, yet you fall in love with cycling. Yeah, completely. And there are these three sports in your life. Yeah. There's uh, the football, which we've discussed, there's, Cycling, we haven't really got to yet properly, but darts. Yeah. Darts is, again, yeah. it's one of these things that's just surprising when I was talking to Nicole a couple of days ago and mentioned darts, and she was just like, what? Yeah. Ned's into darts. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, he's really into darts. <laughs> uh, and by the way, in the show notes, we'll put a link to his book on darts uh, so you can read about it. But can you tell the viewer why darts? Why? The viewer, the listener. Yeah. Well, <laughs> old habits die hard. Old, old habits, they? yeah. Um, Darts is, uh, darts is, well, f- first of all, darts is not just a sport, right? Because people will be going, it's not a sport, right? So <laughs> let's just dispense with that. It's, it is a sport. And I'd go further than that. It's not a sport. It's the sport, right? In the sense that it is the most perfectly <laughs> reductive win or lose game of nerves and skill. Binary it, uh, purist. It's, it's absolutely. I, uh, brilliantly, um, Die Zeit, the German mag- uh, newspaper, came to the World Championships last year in Alexandra Palace. And they went, what is this? You know, the tenor, tenor of their article was, what is this thing called darts that the <laughs> British like? And um, they came to the conclusion, really good article, actually. They came to the conclusion that there is no greater sport. And, and, you know, it's like an endlessly repeating penalty shootout. It is just nerve shredding. It's gladiatorial. It's like, you know, and then, so <laughs> it is the sport. But the other thing I love about it is it's, um, and, and here is the common ground genuinely with cycling, Right. One thing I can guarantee everybody in this hotel, everyone in Shoreditch at the moment, everyone in London has as a common experience is we've all ridden a bike and we have all thrown a dart. Even you, Mika. I have. You've now thrown a dart, right? We've all thrown a dart and we've all ridden a bike. It is part of our common experience. You can't say that about equestrianism, mm-hmm. in Nicole's case. Yeah. You can't say that about javelins. Skiing. Skiing, you certainly can't. Hurdling. Yeah. Formula One, not really. <laughs> You know, <laughs> I do that every day. But, yeah. but we've all ridden the bike. We've all thrown a dart. So yeah. it has a kind of egalitarian thing. And also, darts players are fat, very often, right? And a lot of them are alcoholics. Uh, that's how you still to this day you get good at darts. <laughs> <laughs> it's, right? a, it's a byproduct of drinking. <coughs> it's a byproduct of spending your entire life in a pub. Um, that's the bad news, right? The good news. The good news is the. It, provides a path and an opportunity for people who are genuinely quite marginalized in society. Dart still has its roots in the poorest and the most deprived white working class areas in this country. And, um, uh, th- and often, uh, some of the darts players, if you took darts out of their life, they would be 
people who would be suffering. You know, they would be bottom of the heap in terms of educational chances and uh, life opportunities in various different ways. So it's tremendously egalitarian in a way that almost no, no other sport is. And it's very inclusive. Women play against men in the same competition. They recently, the dance organization just got through its weight lock, stock and barrel behind um, the LGBT Stonewall initiative, the Rainbow Laces, about LGBT plus inclusivity in sport. And everyone went, darts? LGBT? <laughs> no, there is no more natural home, you know, than, yeah. than, a, than a, the sport which is open and accessible to all. I, I absolutely adore it. Huh. I love it. That's it. Uh, I mean, yeah, I kind of look at it differently now. Um, I, and then from the darts, so tell us, why did you write the book and what is the book about? Well, um, the, the book's about the whole of darts. <laughs> it's, it's, um, I, I wanted to tell you about the, the greatest players there's ever been. I wanted to tell the reader about the history of the, the sport, which was really interesting because it turns out there isn't one. <laughs> <laughs> there's just a load of... There's just load. A pub somewhere. Well, they're, yes, they're kind of like... Because no one's bothered, right? They're, they're, and it clearly it has a history because it started in the past. <laughs> But no one quite knows when that point was because no one can, can really be asked to find out, right? Because it's such a slipshod sort of, oh, who cares? Anyway, anyway, let's just get the game on. It's not like right. it was invented by Lord Jackson well, in you 1911. Say, you, know, you know how cycling <laughs> fetishizes its right. past? Yeah, you know, yeah like it does. You yeah. only need to look at the, 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 oh, the black and white, but Arthur, you know, yeah. it's kind of ridiculous sometimes. Um, Darts does the opposite. It just doesn't give a toss about the. It just uh, appeared. It just appeared. Now, it, so I did. There's a lot of mythology about it that is just you need to debunk. You know, it's that, well that's made up. That's made up. That's rubbish. And then, actually, the weird truth is it came from France. What? It actually it was a fairground game in France in the 19th century. And the reason that we kind of know this is that. Um, the Thames barges that used to carry cargo across the Channel were those beautiful boats with the red sails. All their um, cargoes that they carried are itemised, so you could tell how many you know turnips came across the water, how many, how much coal, and how many darts were imported. <laughs> so in the 19th century, Brilliant. 10 million darts what? were imported into the London area. So it spread from, and you think of it as a northern game in this country, yeah, yeah. but y it actually spread from London and the southeast and the Thames estuary northwards. And, and no wonder and they so don't talk about the history. I think it's really interesting. Yeah. It's really interesting. Um, Anyway, so, so it's a bit about that. It's a bit about uh, my journey through, a bit like I've written in cycling, actually, my, my yeah. journey of understanding it to get to this point. But the <laughs> thing I like about this book, it's the most niche book. Almost nobody has read it. <laughs> and it's by far the best book I've ever written. Um, uh, um, I, I made it into a massive literary conceit. Right? So I was struggling for a title. And then I had the title Heart of Dartsness <laughs> suggested to me, like a play on the Joseph Conrad. That's brilliant. Right, book, novel, Heart of Darkness. And I thought, all oh, right, I get it. It's a cheap pun. I tell you what, I'm going to reread Heart of Darkness. So I did, and I thought, hang on, this book is an it's a perfect metaphor for my darts book. So I then, like the River Congo became darts, right? I became Marlowe, the narrator. That making this journey further and further up the River Congo to this kind of <laughs> unknown, where lurking in the jungle was this dark, mysterious, dangerous figure who turned out to be Eric Bristow, the crafty Cockney. <laughs> <laughs> so the whole book is like, who's, who you won't know, but he was a very pugnacious, angry, vaguely criminal, genius darts player who right. passed away about 
a month after I finished writing the book. Oh, but the book works towards me sending him a text message and then not getting a reply and then getting these cryptic replies and then trying to meet him and all this sort of thing. And eventually there's an encounter right at the end. So he is Captain Kurtz. He's Marlon Brando in the, in the you know, from Apocalypse Now is Eric Bristow. So it's this huge literary conceit. But you did meet him in I the c- end. I couldn't possibly tell you that. Okay. Because you d- you're just going to have to read the book. Oh, I see, yeah. You're going to have to read the book, Mikael. Yeah. And we'll put it do, in the notes. If right, you do, like, if you do, yeah. r- r- write a nice review on the, um, on the website, please. Yeah. <laughs> we, will not, we will not reveal it, whether you met him. Right? No. But you went there. I, w- I, the river. I, I went yeah, up yeah, the river yeah, into yeah. darts. I went heavily up the river. Um, <laughs> and, and what was quite funny is, you know, the chapters of, uh, I'm sure you've done it with your books, David. You have a, sometimes you have a little quote at the beginning of the yeah, chapter. Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure what the word is for that. that no. It's got a w- specific word. You curate a little mm-hmm. quote. Every, I think there's something like 24 chapters in the book. Every single one starts with a quote from Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness oh, that somehow relates, <laughs> sometimes oh. quite tenuously, to my journey. I'm sold. I'm reading it. I have read this book. I'm Best in. book I've ever read. Okay. Uh, written. I'm in. I'm not read. That would be... T- t- well, Joseph. you have read it. Yeah, I've read it. <laughs> <laughs> you read it a lot. <laughs> I've read it a lot. Uh, How did so you get into cycling? Can we talk about yeah, that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, David Miller. In I, what I, way? I, like yeah. So I, I got into I got into cycling because um, it was off. It was almost registering zero on the interest scale in in Great Britain. In two thousand and three, I was sent to cover the Tour de France because um, uh, ITV, the broadcaster we still work for, had basically inherited the right, the broadcast rights to show it in the UK for free. <laughs> no one cared. <laughs> and they didn't have... That was much more interesting. That was <laughs> genuinely much more interesting. And they didn't have any, they didn't have enough bodies on the ground to go and do. So they, they took me, a football reporter, and they just sent me to Paris, as it happens, for the beginning of the 2003 Tour de France, where I met David for the first time in rather shocking circumstances for him um, when he failed to win the prologue. Yeah. Um, and, and that's been the strangest thing for me and Dave, and for David in a weird way, is that my entire education in cycling, from day one, and I mean day one, which was the prologue of the 2003 Tour de France, first bike race I've ever seen, to where we're sitting right now, 16 years and 17 summers later, has been f- filtered through his experience. When I turned up at the beginning of Madness, the, n- you know, the beginning of the next year. So you are also reporting... David Miller, in a way. Yeah, in a, in a strange way. It's kind of can like... You t- can you it's talk it's about... Maybe both of you. Can you talk about the first day you met each other in France? Like what, what, well what I can remember. I doubt, I doubt he remembers. He had other concerns. But it was, it was yeah, the Coffee Team Hotel <laughs> that, I, that I night. I barely remember, yeah. That was, a, <laughs> that was a fairly traumatic weekend for I me. I bet it was. Yeah. That was when my, I lost, my, lost the prologue by one second because my chain came off. And so but I was in a foul mood. One of the many foul moods you had to deal with, I think. But I mean, David was a young man. That, and, and the interesting thing was, from that moment on, that was the prologue of the 2003 tour. You finished that race, didn't you? Yeah. Got all the way to Paris. Mm-hmm. I, he was the only Briton on the race. Yeah. And I was the British TV reporter. <laughs> so I, I was basically sent to interview him pretty much every day. Every day. And David at the time was living in Biarritz and didn't even consider himself to be British. He was the least British person. He didn't really want... We was just... Uh, I, I could, my, even my English was quite bad at the time, so I just spoke French all the time. You were the I most could, French person. I was super French at that point. And I didn't... Uh, <laughs> uh, but to be honest, back then it was... Th- th- how much Tour de France has changed since then? Um, we used to go and sit in the start village. Ch- the journalists were all friends, and we were, we were still... The Anglo-Saxons were still this sort of separate kind of little troop. Completely, completely. And it's, it was really... There was something really... I, I think that 
I'd done four Tour de France as the only British cycling cyclist in the Tour. I mean, it's, it's madness now when you think about it. Yes, it is. And so it was just me, the only British rider who was basically French, always British journalists. There was, and it was, we were, it was, those were really the old days compared to what it is now. It's, uh, it's a machine now. The following year where you started your suspension and weren't mm. there in 2004, there were no British riders. So we discovered that, um, but we were still there as British TV with no British riders. Out of 198, not one. We discovered that Robbie McEwen's dad had a British passport. <laughs> so we just, we annexed Robbie McEwen. <laughs> That's good. I mean, you're kind of vaguely British, aren't you? He'd love it as well, yeah. Robbie, wouldn't he? You just became one of us. And so that was then, that's quite strange in that sense. And you came into cycling as a complete um, newbie. You didn't know anything about it. Com- at the t- I mean, completely. And it took so long until I had even the vaguest confidence in my judgment or opinions. I mean, literally. What was your image of cycling? Before? I mean, you must have had some experience. Well, or I have to unthink everything somewhere. I know now to try and remember right. what that state of ignorance was like. Mm-hmm. I mean, what was my image? I, I probably didn't have an image of cycling because I simply didn't, it wasn't, it didn't register <laughs> on my radar. It's like me and darts. It's like, it, ex- <laughs> it was, that's very, very accurate, I would imagine. It's like you and darts. Yeah. I mean, I'd heard of, I'd heard of Lance Armstrong. I didn't know it was a team sport. That came as a huge shock to me. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was just people <laughs> riding their bikes, and, uh, so which in a way it is. Yeah. <clears throat> and yet now you are um, arguably not only the voice, but the, the, the most knowledgeable person on cycling, especially as the editor of, of the road book. As wow. the, the voice of cycling now, I get asked and the books about stuff. Yeah, yeah, but it's yeah. Tr- it's it's true, especially with the journey we've been on. Yeah, in the first 2015, correct. when you went from reporter to commentator, huge. You were leap. having to learn tactics, and at the time you didn't really, you didn't understand. Yeah, and yeah, you, you totally were hold the, my hand up to you, it. You were learning off me, and now we're we're on a complete path. <laughs> it's very rare that there's I I I will see things that only an I love pro cyclist. I love it when you crack the cut. It still happens sometimes in our commentary yeah. where we're both. It's normally about Movistar, isn't yeah. it? <laughs> it's normally about Movistar. <laughs> the we, we, kind of, we kind of like our heads cocked to the side and we're looking at the screen quizzically through sort of squinting eyes going, why would or Astana do it sometimes getting on the front? <laughs> That's so true. Yeah. What, what's and then like I'll carry on commentating anyway. And I'll just ramble on for a bit. And you'll be going, scratch, head scratch, head scratch. And then suddenly you'll bang your fist on the table or throw your papers in the air or something. And, and you'll, you'll tap me on the thing and go, go, go on, I've, I've, I've figured it out now. I've figured it out. They're doing that because of this. Yeah. And it's, it's a eureka yeah. moment. I love it when you do that. I, I love it. It's brilliant. Yeah, and no, that's, that's one of the great things about cycling, isn't it? There are so many different things going on. It's not two teams. Yeah. There's up to 20 teams sometimes. Yeah. And that means there's 20 teams and each team's eight individuals. And that allows for so many variables. Oh, and, yeah. and often, it's not just a, a variable. It's not just the, they're racing for first place. Mm. There are so many different tactics going on within the race. There's races within races within races. There are then emotional things going on. There are vendettas. Yep. There, are, there are sponsor obligations. Yep. And, and it's, sometimes it is you have to crack the code. Yeah. And because it's not at all obvious. Yeah. And you have to totally detach yourself, uh, take a few steps back, and look at a, take, take like a 30,000-foot view and trying to figure out what the hell is going on. And, and sometimes you have to leaf through yesterday's results like that, which are like 40 pages like that. And you go, hang on, is this about the white jersey competition? It's the team classification. That's <laughs> always the default one, isn't it? <laughs> oh, it's the team classification. <laughs> 
that's why this is happening. You must have a huge job in just explaining this for ordinary people watching television because honestly, when you watch it, it's like six hours of people just going you know, through the rain on a, on a flat road yeah. and then somebody takes the front or whatever and then there's all these tactics. It's almost like art in a way where you go to a museum and you have no clue what is this piece of art? Great so some, somebody like has to explain it to you. Yeah. And then, and then, then so they explain much more it, out it. And then it opens up. Mm. Oh, that's what it's about. <laughs> it's yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, that's, uh, that's what it's been like for me. And I think the commentary job uh, opened my eyes to that, was that, that sense. I'd always said to people, uh, the reason that I'm quite good at being the co-commentator, the color, analyzing the race and explaining it, is because I grew up with people who didn't know anything about bike racing, who have had no idea. And so I would say, look, the best way for you to understand it is we'll sit down and watch a race and I'll explain it to you. Because it, it, exactly that. And then, as you said, it would suddenly, it would reveal itself. And they'd not just be looking at this blob of colour going along. They'd start to see the intricacies of it. But over the years, that particularly this applies to the Tour de France rather than the other races where you get a, that we commentate on, where you get a sense that your, your viewership is better informed because it's, it's a smaller group. When the tour comes around, I think the thing that you and I have had to collectively learn to do actually over the last couple of years in particular is maybe rein in our analytical impulses a little bit and, and you don't always want to overwhelm people with tactics because a lot of people just like the cheese and the chateaus and the, and well, the, and chur we, and the and churches and they are quite right. And we had to swallow our pride on that one, didn't we? Because yeah. we thought that was almost amateurish for us to, to digress and talk about chateaus and local sure. regions. And then we realize, well, actually, that's uh, probably a lot of the reason people are watching. And actually, it's, it's things that we enjoy talking about as well. And yet we were a little bit arguably insecure when we started because we were replacing Phil and Paul. And we wanted to be analytical. We wanted to be the, the professional's professional commentator in regards to bike racing. And actually, then we realized a lot of it is about history. It's about uh, the, the, the viewer experience is the, the touristic journey through France. Because you could talk endlessly about whether today Jasper de Boost or Roger Kluger are going to lead out Caleb Ewan. Um, but it's of, it's, of, um, it's of strangely limited interest. Look, look, hello, there's an old friend of ours just wandered in. Yeah. Alec Briggs. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, now, um, before we end, I have one thing I wanted to ask you. It's a yeah. job for yeah. you, actually. So we met um, Tim Marlowe, who's the artistic director of the Royal Arts Academy. He's also a cyclist. And he had this idea... Do you know how many art pieces you roll through in the, you know, Tour de France? How many cultural, you know, oh, uh, wow. artifacts you go through? Like the oldest paintings in the world, for example, the cave paintings and so on. And he had, had this idea, why don't we do a cultural Tour de France? Yeah. Which is now called, it has a... CTDF. Yeah, that's it. And would you like to commentate that, perhaps? Yes. Sign me up. Yeah. That sounds absolutely I brilliant. brilliant. I mean, I'll just go like for a week <laughs> and ride around France with Tim. Yeah. And, and base it on these beautiful uh, either cathedrals, museums. But I think that lends itself to the kind of slight, you and I both, uh, we're both naturally curious, and we but we're both outsiders. Yeah. So, so it kind of works having people learning on the job. You know, so, so you're kind of like, but I found this thing out, I had no Completely. idea. Rather than I'm the expert and I'm going to impart knowledge down Like cliffs. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And me learning about cliffs. Yeah. And uh, I ask everybody this, Ned, because uh, I find it fascinating, and I've seen you very much do this. Uh, I consider in, in life we have these sort of three places we live in. We, we have our family, we have work, and it's this third space, which is, I see you do, and I didn't really understand it at first, the way every morning you have to go for your run or ride your bike. Hmm. And it's, 
and you do it almost it's a fundamental part of your life and I think you've got quite in, into that quite late haven't you because yeah 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 because yeah. actually we haven't mentioned this to, to for people that would know Ned now who is a uh, he's a he's a fit healthy uh, young man but he, he was <laughs> a heavy smoker yeah I know uh, he was a heavy smoker when he yeah. was younger and was world champion world champion really good at that and uh, and what is what does that do to you that's do you recognize you have that third space yeah, it's um, uh, running in particular, actually, f- funny enough. <laughs> I, I'm fonder of running. If I had to choose between the two, cycling, cycling is great. It's a tool for me. I, most of the riding I do is just utilitarian to get from A to B, and, I, and that, that's very important to me. But in terms of exercise, running is the thing for me. Um, and it, it doesn't take long on a run. 10, 15 minutes in, and I always, this is a great thing, you never regret going for a run. 10 or 15 minutes in, without you knowing it, that, f- that little switch has flicked. And you have some of your best thoughts, don't you? Like it, I don't know, how, I don't know how it happens, but the best ideas I've had for my work, come for my life, actually come from running. Although you have to treat them with caution, they're a little. They can be a little bit like ideas you have when you're drunk. Ah, oh, yes. You have to come back and go. I'm not going to act on that immediately. I'm going to have a shower <laughs> and a cup of tea because it may be a shit idea. <laughs> they were wonderful at the moment. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> the euphoria. Well, I meant. I didn't mean it that way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. But. Yeah. What's uh, next for you? What's what's your next chapter or your next? Um, well, I, I'm I'm plagued by uh, uh, worry about this these thirty dates in the theatre that I have to fill with content this time next year <laughs> in November, October, and November. But I'm writing, and yeah, that's that's important to me. And I've got a yeah two year project to to write a, another book that, as I say, is about football. So there we go. And should we sign off just mm. uh, on the last one because uh, for the listeners, we're going to put the show note in the show notes the list of. Uh, the prolific work that Ned does from yeah. the books to, to the show. But can you just explain uh, the road book to people? Because uh, it is, and it's it's not a book that you've just written and then put it to bed. It's going to be an, a, an annual. Com- completely. And uh, we just got a lovely review. And I'm so pleased this year. It's in its second year. It's a review of, of, of road racing. It's 900 pages long. It's very, very, very full of facts and, and editorial content and freshly commissioned writing and beautiful illustration, wonderful photographs and infographics. Um, and um, what's very pleasing in 2019 in its second year is it's beginning to get words getting out internationally around the world about, about the, the quality of this product. And we had a lovely review from a German website that came in yesterday in which they described it as ein Dinosaurier, der hoffentlich noch lange leben wird, which means a dinosaur um, that hopefully will live for a long time. And yeah, they say dinosaur brilliant. because it's an analog product in a digital age, so yeah. it's for counter-cultural people. Well, thank you, Ned. That's been brilliant. And we will link all of this in the show notes and do check it all out because it's uh, quite a, a fantastic... Over of work. I really enjoyed that. Thank you. Thank you.